0: Genesis chapter 17, we're going to start in verse 15. And it says, and God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall become nations, kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and he laughed to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No. Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I've heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among men of Abraham's house. And he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins on that very day as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, we invite you to come. Spirit, we need you to come and to illuminate the scripture to us. To plant its truths deep into our hearts. God, it's our desire that as we leave this place today, we would do so different than when we came. That we would have an encounter with the living God. And we believe this is possible Because, Jesus, you're here with us today. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, yesterday, my family celebrated something very, very exciting. We celebrated the two-year anniversary of our son Mateo's adoption. As we celebrated with friends, we spoke blessing over his life, and I began to think about and remember what life was like before children. Now, that was only nine years ago for me, but some of you parents in the room have adult children. Maybe life before children was 30 years or 40 years ago. Just remember back with me what it was like before those kids entered the scene. I remember being so nervous that I was going to screw these kids up that I was going to make a mistake. So like any good parent, I did my research before bringing my first child into the world. I read every James Dobson and Focus on the Family book that I could get my hands on, just so that I could properly nurture this sweet, tender, young heart and mind that the Lord was entrusting to us. I did a deep dive into classic children's literature so I could be a well-read parent, the kind of books that teach children profound truths uh, that parallel gripping stories of bravery and kindness and compassion, honesty, integrity. I powered through these books, sometimes three or four of these books in a night, stories like If You Give a Mouse a Cookie, (laughs) Good Night Moon, Green Eggs and Ham, and last but not least, maybe the single most important book you could read before you have kids, Everyone Poops. And I did all that. I made that sacrifice with joy so that when my kids were born, I could just throw that all out the window and survive on bribery and mild manipulation. Don't judge me. Don't, I, I felt that. Don't judge me. The best parents do it. Bribery and mild manipulation. One of these award-worthy moments happened when my children were having a hard time going to bed. At night. And consequently, they would wake up crying and crabby. And so the conversation went something like this Child, you were created in the image of God. He loves you. He has incredible plans for your life. And I would hate for you to miss out on those plans because your brain has turned to mush because of lack of sleep. So, in an effort to help you realize everything that God has for you, everything that you are in God, I will buy you frozen yogurt sometime this week if you just go to sleep right away. And you can sign up for my parenting class outside on your way out of church today. You know, some of you could be like, oh, that's, that's not funny. We shouldn't joke about raising kids, right? But it worked. They went to sleep quietly in the morning. They bounded out of bed. They were so excited with a smile on their face. And they said, can we get frozen yogurt now? And I said, thirty in the morning is not the time, child. We got dressed and ready for school and on the way to school, can we get frozen yogurt now, Dad? You promised. I said, no, we, we gotta get to school we're running late. We 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 can't get frozen yogurt now. This went on for a few more days, and I finally found an afternoon that would work. I was excited to pick them up from school, ask them how their day was, but something strange happened. Four or five days later, they didn't ask if we were going to get frozen yogurt anymore. And when I pulled into the parking lot, The kids yelled, I thought we were never going to get it. And we went and had their frozen yogurt. Now, while I've probably lost all respect from you as far as parenting goes, uh, you have to admit this story illustrates something that is universally true for everybody in the room today. Some of the most difficult moments we face in life are moments where we're stuck waiting where we are forced to wait. I want to put it this way. Some of the most difficult moments we face in life are living in the tension between something promised and that promise being fulfilled and feeling stuck and powerless to change it at all. Something's been promised. It hasn't been fulfilled. And now I'm just sitting here waiting. The tension between where we are and, and where we hope to be the tension between what is and what we feel should be. And for children, that could be the promise of fro- frozen yogurt because their life is kind of centered around ice cream, right? It's, it's simple. But for us, these, these hopes and expectations are much more profound. The seasons of waiting, the seasons of waiting on unfulfilled promises can be crippling at times. Feeling like God is more distant than he should be. Feeling like you haven't heard him speak to you in a while and you're just wondering, God, what's going on? I'm just waiting. Well, this morning in our text, we're going to see two different reactions to that tension and then two different responses from the Lord to those reactions. I want us, just for a moment, I know we've been living in Genesis for a long time, but if you're just joining us this morning, let's let's just kind of get caught up together as we approach this passage. Think about where Abram has been with God. 24 years ago, Abram had left Haran in obedience to God's call. The Lord had promised to make him a great nation and to bless him and to make his name great. It's Genesis chapter 12, verse 2. God formally made a, a covenant with Abram, specifying that his heir would come from his own body, Genesis chapter 15. And in chapter 16, Abram took the wrong turn. He attempted to produce an heir from a different woman, Hagar, and this only caused disunity and heartache for all. Abram was 86 years old when Ishmael was born. Now in chapter 17, 13 years have passed. Abram is 99 years old, Ishmael's 13, and his wife Sarai is 89 years old. Abraham and Sarai have been living in the tension between a promise and that promise so far unfulfilled. And they've been waiting a long time. It's easy for us to read these quickly. It's just a few chapters, just a few verses, just a few pages. But 24 years, they're stuck waiting. And in Genesis chapter 17, verse 15, if you want to put your eyes on the verse, it says, And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Abraham had just had his name changed as Mike preached last week in the verses leading up to this. Now, Sarai's name being changed by the Lord. Abraham meaning father of many nations. And now Sarah wears this new name, this new identity that God is calling her to, which means the princess and mother of kings. Now, it's important for us to note that names in the cultural context of the day carried immense meaning, far more than names in our own culture do. For example, my name Aaron means mountain of strength. Yeah, that's right. How fitting. I wouldn't mind if you just rolled up on Sunday and were like, whoa, what's up, Mountain of Stray? But it would be weird because we don't often identify the meaning of a name with the actual name. We pick names often because they're cool or we like the sound of them, right? But not in this culture. It's very similar to the cultural context I live in while ministering in the country of Uganda. I meet someone on the road. They introduce themselves and they tell me their name is Chiza. I know immediately that they were born right after a set of twins. That person's name literally means born after a set of twins. So to call them by their name, it's like, hey, born after a set of twins, would you like to grab lunch? It's a very literal meaning of the name. And if you were born after twins in Uganda, that's your name. You don't get to choose. You don't get to be mountain of strength. You just get to be born after twins. And so it is for Abraham and Sarah. They have these names that communicate meaning. I mean, can you imagine what it would have felt like for Abraham and Sarah to do this? To commune with the Lord and have him be like, I'm changing your name. You got to go tell everyone now. And to roll up and be like, hey, guys, um, I was Abram, and I have just one son, born by my mistress, in my own efforts to usher in God's promise. And I now need you to call me Abraham, father of many nations. I now need you to address me as Sarah, mother of kings. What a reminder in a season of promise yet fulfilled. Of what God is doing. The promise hasn't been fulfilled. Sarah is not pregnant. Isaac has not been born. Yet God asked them to assume this identity and assume this name. And when the people greet them, good morning, father of many nations. Here's your dinner, mother of kings. And the simple change in the story. This little change in the text would have served as a constant reminder that God's promise had not yet been realized in their lives. And God does something even more audacious than just change their names. Look at verse 16 again. God says, I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Not only does God reaffirm the promise to Abraham, but goes out of his way to make it clear that this son will be born from Sarah. How does Abraham respond? Verse 17, it says, Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? At first glance, it appears that Abraham has the same response that Sarah will have just one chapter from now. The scripture records them both laughing, and the question we have to ask ourselves is, did Abraham laugh with the same spirit of doubt and unbelief as Sarah? Or did they have the same response? Or is their response different? And as we come to a place in the text like this, As we come to a portion of Scripture where we're kind of left with a question of how how do we look into this? How do we realize what's happening here? It's a great example of how we should seek out biblical context that makes an interpretation seem likely. If we're going to realize what Abraham's doing here and what his response is, we need to look around and and see what the biblical context is that makes an interpretation seem likely. So I want us to look at a few things together. And the first is what the Apostle Paul wrote about this in the book of Romans. It's in Romans chapter 4, verse 17 through 24. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he, Abraham, believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that did not exist. It continues in verse 18 of Romans chapter 4. In hope, Abraham believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. Abraham did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead. Man, I love Paul. That is a burn. He didn't say he was old. He said he was as good as dead. Brutal. Since he was about 100 years older when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Verse 20. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Six times, the Apostle Paul, looking back on this interaction between the Lord and Abraham, affirms Abraham's faith, not doubt, not skepticism in response to God's promise. Abraham's faith that he would have an heir from his own almost dead 100-year-old body and from Sarah's 90-year-old barren body. The six things he said was the presence of God in whom he, Abraham, believed. He, the hope he believed against hope. He did not weaken in faith. He did not doubt in unbelief. He was strengthened in faith, and he was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And we go back to our original text this morning. And the context of the scripture also affirms Abraham's remarkable faith. What does Abraham do when the Lord says this? He falls face down before God. He humbles himself. He takes a different posture. You know, this is why second set is super important to us. Sometimes your only response to God is to change your physical posture. And to get up before him and say, God, I'm changing something about where I am right now. I'm coming before you. I'm kneeling down before you because that is the reverence. That is the awe. And that is the response you deserve. We don't just do that for fun. It gives us an opportunity to hear from the Lord and then respond. And let that truth sink down deep in our hearts, in our minds, and say, God, I recognize who you are and what you're doing. Let this be real for me. Let this take root for me in my heart and in my mind. And God says, you will have a son. It will be born to Sarah. And Abraham, boom, falls on his face before God. He humbles himself before the Lord. Most commentators and biblical scholars conclude that Abraham, his laugh is one of joy and astonishment and wonder as he tries to wrap his mind around what God is actually saying. In verse 18, Abraham says, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God, is that what you're talking about? Abraham didn't really understand God's promise completely. He perhaps that God simply meant ishmael would be sarah's spiritual son or or adopted son it's as if he's saying are you sure you're not talking about ishmael my 13 year old son he already exists and god says in verse 19 no sarah your wife shall bear you a son and you shall call his name isaac i will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him as for ishmael i have heard you behold i have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes, and I will make him into a great nation. Verse 21 is an important one. He reiterates the promise. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. God's like, I'm going to be abundantly clear. This is coming through Isaac, who will be born of Sarah at this time next year. Abraham accepts Sarai's name change. He falls on his face before the Lord, and he responds with joyful laughter and then moves into obedience with God. This is the context that informs what Abraham's response really was. Immediately from this, we read in this chapter that Abraham gets up and moves into obedience. In verse 22, through the end of chapter 17, Abraham established the covenant of circumcision that God set forth in the beginning of chapter 17 by circumcising every male descendant and every dependent Of Abraham. While living in the tension of God's promise given and waiting for the promise to be fulfilled, Abraham responds with submission, with worship, and obedience. Okay, God, I hear you. We'll change our names. I will will fall down before you. And after this conversation, he literally goes and seals a covenant. That is probably the craziest thing I've ever read in Scripture. And he does it. He moves. God's voice moves Abraham to obedience. And I love this as we see this. Abraham's journey with God shows a maturing faith. Despite moments of doubt, despite moments of failure, despite veering off course and hiding in Egypt and trying to make this happen with with Hagar, He leans into the promises of God. He presses into the promises of God, even though he struggles to understand exactly how they'll happen. And after Abraham's reaction of faith, worship, and obedience to the covenant, the Lord responds in an amazing and personal way. We're going to go to chapter 18, verse 1. It says the Lord appeared to him to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre and he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold 3 men were standing in front of him. When he saw them he he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree, while I bring a morsel of bread, that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three seas of flying flour, knead it. And make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds of milk and, and the calf that he had prepared, and he, he set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. Abraham responds, "Show what God speaks." He humbles himself, he worships, he moves to obedience. And what happens here is absolutely mind-blowing. Abraham experiences unity, intimacy, and closeness with the Lord. Abraham visits with and prepares a meal for Jesus and two angels. This is incredible. The relationship between Abraham and God is close. It's intimate. This is exactly what Pastor Mike was preaching about last week, that God introduces himself for the first time as El Shaddai, God Almighty, and establishes a personal relationship with Abraham when he says, I will be your God. Let's not forget that he just endured 13 years of silence. 13 years of waiting, 13 years of wondering how his descendants would outnumber the stars when he only had one child, Abraham sits and he prepares and he enjoys a meal with the Lord. And they said to him, Abraham, where's Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of a woman had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord Abraham is old, shall I have pleasure? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh? Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Sarah has a different response than Abraham had in the moment. Sarah doesn't fall face down in worship. She laughs. And it's a different kind of laugh. We can tell it's a different kind of laugh because the, the Lord responds to her reaction differently than Abraham's. Her laugh is one of, of disbelief and skepticism at the physical possibility or impossibility of what the Lord has said. And her assertion isn't wrong either. It just wasn't physically possible for a woman of her age to conceive and bear a child. And as we look at Sarah's response, I think her laugh carries a a myriad of feelings and emotions. I think it's charged with emotions and, and this, this, this experience of living in the season of waiting. I think her, her, her laugh is filled with doubt. God, we've heard this. Really now? You know how old I am, seriously? There may be fear in this. God, now, really? Are you serious? Maybe there's hopelessness. I mean, after 90 years of barrenness, what could possibly change now? And the Lord responds in verse 14. Is anything too hard for the Lord? That's an incredibly difficult question. And I want to stand up here and just say that every time I'm asked that and every time I face that, I say, no, nothing, God, I trust you completely in all areas of my life and I never doubt ever. Let's put it on a t-shirt and a coffee mug. But I think, I think, I, I think it's an important question for Sarah. Not just because the answer is no, because it speaks to the concern we have when life is really hard. When the bottom's falling out from under my boat. When I, when I just don't know if I can make it. When I just don't know if I can wait any longer. When I just feel too far from God. That question speaks to the heart of the issue. And he says, is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. (laughs) And Sarah denied it. She's like, I didn't laugh. It wasn't me. It was someone else. Because she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. Busted. I love how the Lord responds to Sarah almost as much as I love how the Lord responds to Abraham by rolling up and having a meal with him and reaffirming the promise. The Lord firmly reasserts the promise and gently confronts her doubt. He confronts it head on. Is anything too hard for the Lord? This momentary lapse of faith and unbelief aren't met met with stern reprimand. God doesn't punish Sarah and take away his promise to them. He meets Sarah where she's at with faithfulness and love. He meets her in the midst of unbelief and skepticism and doubt. And he comes, he confronts the doubt, and he reasserts the promise. He operates in faithfulness and love. And boy, can I tell you, that is good news for me today. That is such good news. News for me today, because as much as I love what Abraham did so many times in my life, I see myself doing what Sarah does. Okay, God, sure. I believe it. Actually, I probably believe it better for other people than I do myself. And God comes in. And he confronts the doubt. He reasserts the promise. And he meets Sarah with faithfulness and love. Sarah's laughter is the laughter of many of us. Those hurt and frustrated by painful seasons and circumstances. It's the laughter and the emotion and the feeling of those battling skepticism and wrestling with doubt. I love what, what Sharon said as she led us boldly in the truth of that song. And I will rest in your confidence. Faithful you are. And she encourages just raise your hand and, and, and sing that truth, even though you may not feel that today. Sing the truth, reassert the promise, choose to identify with the promise. Sarah's laughter is, is found in those struggling with patience in the face of delay. And as we sit here today, believers in Jesus Christ, we are given a number of promises from God as we follow Jesus. And I'm not talking about false promises of wealth and success or fame. These aren't, these aren't prosperity gospel, blab it, grab it, name it, claim it. That's not where I'm going, okay? The Bible gives us so many unambiguous promises from our triune God that we can celebrate with certainty. These are the God-given promises brought to us by the mercy and the grace of God given through the new covenant of Jesus' shed blood. Here are some of my favorites. He promises to give us wisdom if we ask. James chapter 1 verse 5. He promises to provide a way out of temptation. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, verse 9. He promises salvation to those who turn to Jesus. John 3.16 He promises to never leave us and to never forsake us. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 5 He promises to finish the good work that He has begun in us. Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 And He promises, church, hear me, He promises to come back. Luke chapter 12 verse 40 He's coming back. These promises are sure, they're steadfast. Do you notice that these promises, they have much more to say about who God is or how he is sanctifying us than about a specific circumstance or outcome. We're not promised certainty in our circumstances, but we are promised certainty in the God of our circumstances. And that is an anchor for our soul. Running parallel to these promises, to these truths, is that is the reality that we live in a broken world that still groans and is waiting for full redemption. We live currently in the tension that God promises wisdom, and I prayed, and I've sought the Lord, and I still don't know what to do, and I don't feel wise. Some of us live in the tension of of feeling overcome by guilt and shame, yet we know the promise of forgiveness if we confess our sins and repent. Or we're stuck waiting, we live in the tension of doubt that comes when we feel alone and feel scared, but we read the promise that God will never leave us and God will never forsake us. We feel the tension of God's promise to finish the good work he began in us, even when we feel like a hot mess. So I've got one point this morning, just one. When we're caught living in the tension of a promise made and the promise fulfilled, how we wait and what we do while we're waiting matter. It really matters. When we're caught living in the tension of a promise made and the promise fulfilled, how we wait and what we do while we're waiting matter. Like Abraham and Sarah, we have moments of faith and moments of doubt. I vacillate between these two. I I, I don't always get it right. But what we choose to do in those moments and how we choose to wait matter. I want to revisit just for a moment the name changes we see in chapter 17. Abram is renamed Abraham, the father of many nations. Sarai is renamed Sarah, the mother of kings. Why does God change their names before he fulfills the promise of their changed names? That was the question that stumped me. Why not wait until after Isaac was born? Why did God change their names before the promise? was realized. I believe God wants them to live in the truth before the truth has even been realized in their lives. That he wants to place their eyes on the truth. Let me say it like this. God wants them to live in the fullness of the promise before the promise has been fully fulfilled in their life. They are to identify with the promise, believing in the promise, trusting in the promise that it's as good as done if God has said it. And this exercise of trust, this placing your full trust in the promise is the essence of faith. Faith is trusting in the trustworthiness of God. You say you come to faith in Jesus, it's it's literally believing. I believe God is who he says he is. I believe Jesus is who he says he is and that God will do what he says he will do. Full stop. We are to live in the truth of God's promises, letting the promises of God shape our identity even while we wait. Even while we experience hardship, We press into, we lean into the promise God has given us. We anchor our hope in heaven. We live in the truth of that promise and draw hope from it, even though the promise of Christ's return has not yet been realized. And I know that sounds like, okay, great. Great. Believe it when it's hard. Identify with the promise. And the question is, how do I do that? How do I do that? I think Abraham got it right. He didn't fully understand it, yet he humbled himself, he submitted himself, and he worshiped. Sometimes the longest journey the truth can take is the 18 inches between your head and your heart. How many of you have known the right answer and you just didn't feel it? Like a billion times. And I know everybody's hand raised. It's true for me. This is why community matters. To have people remind you of the truth and to remind you of the promise. This is why worship matters. It's not the warm-up act. Worship is bringing the totality of my being before the living God and saying, God, all of this is true about my life. These are my doubts. These are my fears. These are my problems. These are my worries. I bring them before you. And in this moment, I lay them submitted at your feet, and I choose to proclaim this truth about you. Worship is warfare. Worship cements the promise deep in our hearts. And here's the best part. In the tension, in the waiting, in those seasons, we have Jesus. He embodies God's promise and its fulfillment. In Jesus, we see that God's promises are not just for the future. They impact our lives here and now. Ultimately, Jesus is the fulfillment of every promise we have in God. God's promises have always seemed unbelievable. From an elderly couple having a child to the resurrection of the Messiah. But Jesus is the intersection of God's promises and their fulfillment. From the lineage of Abraham, he came as the ultimate promise to humanity. On the cross and and by his resurrection, Jesus was the fulfillment of God's seemingly impossible act and promise of redemption. In Jesus, God shows that he is faithful even when we doubt, even when we don't see how something could possibly happen. Jesus, we look to Jesus. And as we live in this tension, may our faith be strengthened, our hope be anchored, and our love for Jesus deepened. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that that you meet us where we're at in this place right now. God, some of us or many of us could, could feel that Feel like we're in that season of, of waiting, God, There, where you seem distant and you seem far away. And Jesus, you come and you meet us. Jesus, we choose in this moment to submit these things before you, our, our doubts and our fears, our anxieties, our worries. We choose to bring them before you, Jesus, and to worship you. Holy Spirit, we invite you to come. And as we worship and and declare these truths to bring glory to Jesus, may you work in our hearts and our minds. We thank you for your faithfulness, God. Your long-suffering, your steadfastness, your kindness. God, we thank you that you approach us with with grace, and with mercy. God, that we can come to you and find safety and rest. That hopeless hearts can come to you, Jesus, and find hope. That anxious hearts can come to you, Jesus, and find peace. What a good God you are. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.